All right, welcome to uh, Legal Tech Week, our weekly uh, roundtable of legal tech journalists and bloggers, where we talk about the week's top stories and whatever else comes to mind. I think some of the things we may be talking about today are the uh, postmortem on the Legal Week conference, uh, some news on Microsoft 365 for legal, uh, a major firm's hiring of a remote partner, and much more. So uh, stay tuned for all of that, plus our rants and raves, our new feature at the end of the show. And uh, stay tuned for that. I am Bob Ambrogi. I'm the host of the uh, podcast, Law Next, and I write the blog, Law Sites. And our usual panelists are all here. Uh, Joe, you want to kick us off? Introduce yourself. Sure thing. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am uh, coming to you from my brand new computer after I completely bricked my other one, which, you know, it gives me all the credibility of being a legal tech commentator. I managed to ruin a computer. So. <laughs> all right. Uh, Molly. Molly McDonough. I'm a media strategist based in the Chicago area. I also write a blog called Adjust Society when I feel like it. And I am a producer for the podcast uh, Legal Talk Today. All right. And uh, Zach? Hey there, everybody. My name is Zach Warren. I'm the editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. Uh, normally, these things are Friday afternoon. I don't drink on them because I still have work to do afterwards, but... It's legal week. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. <laughs> is that Ham's the beer refreshing? Yes, nice. it is, baby. Uh, it was a dollar a can at my local burger takeout place the other night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you splurged for the occasion. Uh, Victoria. Hey, everyone. My name is Victoria Hutchins. I'm a reporter with Legal Tech News, which is owned by ALM. So you may see my um, byline on law.com, The American Lawyer. And also you may have um, seen me also earlier this week on The Barometer, um, highlighting some points from Legal Week. And we'll be discussing that further today. I did see you there. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Nikki? Uh, Nikki Black. I am legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software, and I'm a, also a legal tech journalist. I write for outlets, uh, including ABA Journal, Above the Law, and um, Daily Record, and the My Case blog. Uh, and I didn't get the memo. I'm drinking Pellegrino, but I can see I, I was really so. I'm so glad it's Friday though, but I probably should be drinking something a little more substantive. But I'm not, so. Oh, well, I'm jealous. And and remember, it's not just legal week. It's legal year now. So you really (laughs) could kick it off. All year long. (laughs) Does that mean we can't drink until the end of the year or we can drink every day? Yeah, I was about to say, this Uh, is the last one. Probably not good for me if that's what we're really going for. (laughs) Uh, My name is Victor Lee. I am assistant managing editor for the ABA Journal, handling business of law and technology. Uh, This is water, but uh, if I say anything stupid or say anything like really dumb, and makes you kind of wonder about my sanity, then this was vodka, so. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm drinking out of my, my my case glass here, Nikki, so uh, you guys pay me thousands of dollars to do that, right? It's just a convenient, that's I'll the best cup in the that. world, I invoice you for that. right? Yeah. <laughs> that cup uh, is just like convenient. You can hide alcohol in it if you want to, or it'll keep things cold, yeah, or hot. Yeah, no, it works great. <laughs> 
So Steve Embry, who's usually on the panel, is not here today. Caroline Hill, I don't know. She was here. <laughs> we lost her in the pre uh, in the pre room before as we were getting ready to go on. So hopefully she comes back. She was having a little camera difficulty. Uh, and uh, let's hope she gets back. So um, legal legal week, legal week year, legal week, whatever just kicked off this past this past week. Uh, the first the first installment of a year-long series of events that are making up for the lack of a physical conference. Um, and uh, wondering what people thought. We do have to be careful what we say here, maybe because Zach and Victoria are here, but uh, no, don't representing the company. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, guys. Be safe to you. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I can say I was a little disappointed uh, in in the overall. I, I didn't love the um, the uh, the um, what am I trying to say? The platform that they used, um, uh, and I, what I part of what I didn't like about it is it didn't really allow for interaction among the attendees in any meaningful way. And I think that's been one of the strong points of some of the some of the virtual conferences that we've liked has been the ability to kind of interface and and communicate with with other people who are attending and this one seemed kind of uh, kind of stilted in, in that sense it didn't really allow that and um i don't know other thoughts what do people think yeah, yeah I, 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 definitely, I, I definitely think it had its positives and negatives and that was definitely the negative to me too um i had one or two meetings that i tried scheduling through the internal scheduling system that they had on there but we never quite got the video working internally on the platform and it felt kind of weird and even though during the panels themselves a lot of times during the q a it was definitely very one-sided where you could ask a question you didn't necessarily know if they saw your question then they got to it but you couldn't interact with anybody else who was there so the Walking around, seeing, talking to people that you normally get during legal week, I definitely agree there wasn't as much of that, which is a shame because that was that's a main selling point. Yeah. Molly, you're going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say that I, I did hear Ari Kaplan thought that the ability to create a meeting was kind of cool, um, but I didn't try it. I, I was disappointed I couldn't just chat with somebody that I wanted to. Um, I don't know if that was a possibility, but when I tried to, to see if I could do that, I, I couldn't. Um, but I did like some of the programs. I, I thought they were great. I thought they um, did a really nice job taking in audience questions, even though the chat wasn't active in any of the sessions I was in. Um, but the Q&A was active and, and it was good to see that, that those that questions were addressed in, in the live sessions. Um, just overall, I thought the political folks um, didn't um, make me super excited. I thought Stacey Abrams did an okay job steering clear of talking about partisan politics, but um, but Chris Christie was just it was it was like watching a political pundit talk on a on a network. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I also thought she did a good job of tangentially trying to make it discuss legal tech. Like there was an effort to be like, you know, lawyers should understand that, you know, some of these pedestrian needs of like how the, the, how things work or something that we should care about and be creative about solutions. And I was like, okay, there's, there's like an effort here. 
Um, and yes, that did not happen on day three's lecture time for some traffic problems at legal week. Yeah. I'm feeling from the chat, we really should just be talking about beer and not legal week, but, uh, <laughs> uh, anybody, anybody else, I, I, you know, I mean, I guess one other thing I, in Zach, you could tell me maybe this was intentional, but it's there's Legal Week has made so much effort over the last few years, including rebranding as Legal Week, to distance itself from e-discovery, uh, and because it had become, you know, years ago it was not an e-discovery conference, and then it became all about e-discovery, and people started to say, "Oh, well, I'm not going to go because it's just about e-discovery." So they they seem to have been making an effort to distance themselves over the last couple of years, or or not distance themselves, but broaden their scope so that they'd be attractive to a wider audience. Uh, and this year, just awfully heavily e-discovery, it, it felt like. And that might have been by design because I know there's more programming spread throughout the year. And uh, so I don't know. Yeah, I, two things to say on that. First of all, yes, there is going to be more programming spread throughout the year. And I think that was very much by design. Like in past in past couple of years, there was illegal business strategies, quote unquote, track, separate conference, what have you. That's going to be in March this year. So yeah. there they're kind of spreading stuff like that out a little bit, but also I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that. Um, I think that there was a good amount of e-discovery, but especially compared with something like three years ago where it was pretty much every session because all of the sponsors were e-discovery. I think there was a decent amount of other stuff and especially a decent amount of speakers where even if they're talking about something like privilege review, they're coming at it more from the legal litigator standpoint than they are necessarily the tech standpoint. So from that point of view, I kind of disagree that it was e-discovery tech heavy and kind of more niche what you're looking for there. Yeah. Uh, Victoria, I wonder what you thought. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Years ago, I worked at ALM and back in the days when I worked at ALM, uh, there was a sort of complete sort of church and state line between what was then legal tech and, and the editorial staff at ALM. Uh, as I recall, we were not even allowed to cover legal tech because they felt that there would be a conflict of interest. And it sort of created this artificial line between the editorial people who could actually have a lot to contribute uh, to a conference like legal tech or legal week uh, and, and the conference itself. And I, I, I'm glad to see that ALM has, um, move beyond that and, and integrate, it actually kind of integrates the editorial staff as part of the experience. And, and you guys were, were part of that this week. Um, so I don't know, Victoria, what did you, what did you think of that? Yeah. Um, that's definitely something that ALM was kind of like saying, like leading up to it, like hearing, like going to these panels, providing our insights during the barometer minute about like how the panels that we saw and how they relate to the beats and the coverage that in the topics that we're covering. So I thought that was something like we really put an emphasis on and it wasn't just the tech desk, you also saw business of law, the litigation desk and um, how, when they would go out to those panels and how they're related to the um, beats that they're covering. So that's something that we definitely did. I did kind of miss out on like, you know, the kind of like chaos, organized chaos of like going on the legal week floor where the vendors are and seeing so many vendors and interacting with them. And they did have a feature, which I thought was kind of trying to act like that, where you could go to the sponsors channel and click on like the individual sponsors and maybe just pop in and say hi. And I did that with one vendor. 
um, just a random vendor I'd never heard of and just spoke to them for a couple of minutes about their product. Another vendor, I clicked on a page, no one was in there, so I couldn't do anything. So you do kind of miss some of that kind of like interaction networking that I don't think any video, um, any uh, virtual conference I've seen, like they haven't been able to bring that to the virtual landscape. It's just something that you miss from not being in person. But I think the topics were actually not heavily e-discovery, even though this session was more geared towards um, technology because we we're spreading it out throughout the year. But I think kind of like from the panels that I looked at and like looking at the titles of some of the panels I wasn't able to attend, it seemed like they were kind of not just like a copy and paste from 2020's legal uh, legal tech year. It's kind of like, hey, you know, this whole thing, COVID and working remote from home, how did that kind of change things for everything? So I think they were trying to do that. And it didn't seem overly e-discovery, um, um, overly like too much e-discovery, but to me, it seemed like it was good and just kind of like a keynote speaker is I kind of doubt like would ALM have been able to book Stacey Abrams and Chris Christie for the same for one event. I kind of that was kind of like I think having the ability to do it virtually. That was something that we were able to do. And Stacey Abrams kind of leaded um, kind of her discussion was a little bit more to, towards um, she talked more about like being a lawyer and I kind of thought it was interesting. She mentioned about kind of like lawyers fear of doing things differently that can like impact the industry. And we definitely see that with legal tech with lawyers saying, I'm not gonna adopt that because that's not how we always did things. So it was, um, you know, challenges with just dealing with a virtual environment, but there were some upsides as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I where were the avatars? I looked all over and I couldn't <laughs> find a single one. They were going on at a different <laughs> conference this week. <laughs> I know, right? That one was different because it was smaller compared to the first one. I thought, but the I EDMR didn't do one. the other. I didn't do it this week. I missed. I missed. Yeah. I saw there was dancing though at the Avatar conference. There was. I missed that. I only went in for like ten minutes and then I left. Yeah. Somebody posted it up on Facebook. I mean, on uh, LinkedIn or something. Video, oh, I saw that video That's of right. the attendees dancing in the virtual conference. Uh, all right. Well, we will uh, stay tuned for, I guess, for round two of Legal Week here, which comes up, uh, what did you say, in March 2nd? Yep. March, the next one, second of five. Yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Um, what else do we have this week? I mean, it's one of the funny things is also there wasn't as much of a flow of news as would normally come out of this conference. I mean, normally, you know, as Victoria alluded to, we'd all be down in the exhibit hall or in briefing rooms, meeting with vendor after vendor and, and getting all sorts of briefings. Uh, I had a, a couple of these sort of uh, speed dating vendor rounds in advance of the conference, which weren't even really news. They were, the, for the most part, just kind of like, hello, how are you? What's new kind of things without any major announcements. There were announcements and it shouldn't downplay that, but certainly not the flow of it. Uh, so in, in the terms of stuff being announced this week, it was actually not a, not a really noisy week, but um, uh, what do we, you know, uh, what do we have? Uh, what do we have in terms of news? Uh, who wants to kick us off? Uh, let's see, Joe, did you want to talk about something here? You've got something. I, on I, I did um, a, just an interesting conversation that I saw. Um, I saw it go on over Twitter. Um, Adrian Camara, uh, is that how you pronounce it? I actually don't know uh, Adrian. Uh, so if that's wrong. Sorry. Uh, from Athenian uh, had a 
had a conversation about legal tech on Twitter, talking about how co-development with law firms is a trap and you shouldn't fall for it, uh, and talked a lot about how working with law firms, while it provides you know, an instant influx of revenue to have a partner who works with your product, uh, the idea of developing and collaborating with them, in his experience, doesn't work because ultimately the law firms are so eager to make it be their kind of custom thing that they you know, change their mind all the time and just prevent it from becoming a viable product. And I saw Joshua Lennon retweet this saying, you know, that's interesting because Clio, we kind of think that co-development with firms was actually a huge part of getting good at this. And I was, I thought about it because I was like, is this a, is this an issue that is specific to certain kinds of products where some products can benefit from this and some can't? Is this, uh, is there a right answer one way or the other? Uh, it just seemed like an interesting topic to me. I didn't really come out of it with a, a real thought, but I thought it, I found it interesting. I, I mean, I don't, I completely agree with Josh Lennon. At my case, at least, our customer's input is paramount. And the, that's how we, um, we use their input to help guide what we develop and what we add to the product. So, you know, and this, I understand sort of, perhaps it's because they were just developing um, complex software that I guess maybe it's different if you have a software that's, um, you plan to have used by lots and lots of law firms rather than just big law where you may be implementing it with just a few firms. So I wonder if that's the difference so that it was a large, they were working with large law firms who would want to try to create this in-house proprietary thing. So maybe there's a conflict there, but when it's a um, like practice management software, which is, you know, you're trying to, it's a broad, you know, you're trying to get the um, thousands and thousands of firms, not just this few large law firms then it may be a different proposition. And maybe that's why um, our answers are slightly different or our experience is different than the one that you're talking about. That's the only thing I can come to mind that comes to mind in terms of why it's such a different experience or a different perspective, maybe. One of the things that um, I, I I thought about when I, I was reading through this, essentially this thread, which is basically an essay uh, rant um, on this topic, there are some good lessons learned here. So I think it's really useful for, for entrepreneurs to take a look at this. Um, but one of the things I w was thinking about is that uh, when I keep hearing this as a common theme for, with entrepreneurs and uh, startups where they get into a relationship with a potential customer and the customer keeps changing the product. So it gets the, the scope of the work gets too muddied. And so it's a, it's a really constant struggle for startups to stay very focused on what their product does and what they're offering and to keep building on that. So that was one of the things I thought about. And then I also heard during Legal Week, entrepreneurs, including Chris and Sunday, talk about how they wouldn't have been able to develop their products without law firm partnerships and being able to work within an organization and really test it um, and develop a good business, good use case. I mean, really, the, the devil's really in, in the details, right? I mean, you know, we don't know exactly what the situation was with, you know, what firms were involved, what product it was, what the, what the negotiations were. And, I, and actually probably disclosing that would probably be like a breach of some kind of <laughs> uh, some kind of uh, uh, confidentiality agreement and whatnot. So, so, we, so I mean, I mean, like we're, we're also not maybe not getting all the details and like or, or, or all the all the details that we would need in order to kind of draw a conclusion from this. But I mean, yeah, it is interesting because I mean, one thing that 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 I found interesting was the idea of like, you know, be wary of like 
the firm that like like the firm that has like an, it has the innovative partner or the innovative associate because they might not actually have the power to be able to do things. And it's just you know I, I think it kind of talks to like the whole idea of how like there are some firms out there who who want to talk the talk, but then when it comes time to actually do it, they you know either pull put the brakes on or they say you know let's let, let's look at this a little bit further or let's do this or do that or there's you know people in power who don't want to see it happen. So so I thought that was interesting because yeah you, you do have to kind of understand who you're who you're who you're I guess getting into bed with so to speak. Um, and so, so, so from that standpoint, I, I definitely kind of thought it was interesting, but yeah, I mean, I would definitely want to know more about, about things and maybe I, maybe that's not possible in this case. It's hard for me to remember a time I've had a demonstration of any kind from a legal tech vendor who hasn't said, you know, we worked closely with our partner firms to develop this product and we their input was invaluable in helping us shape uh, the, the the contours of what, is, what it's like and all, all of that. And, you know, you often wonder whether that's bullshit or not, but uh, uh, they all say that. And, and I realize we're, there's degrees of that kind of a, a partner relationship, uh, but obviously you do uh, need to have uh, some kind of feedback from your the intended audience you would hope and and uh, at least go through some beta testing and, and develop it in that way. Well, that's definitely true. I have noticed before, though, some companies saying, you know, legal technology as a discipline historically has been slow. We want to Silicon Valley this up. We want to be more like SaaS, more like Salesforce than anything that is currently in legal technology. So while I definitely think there is an element of, yeah, we need our customers to be able to test this thing and make sure we're on the right track. I think some would also argue that they don't necessarily want lawyers helping build these tools because lawyers don't necessarily think about software the same way that software developers do, right? As just kind well, of a devil's advocate. Yeah. Well, and along the same lines, the thing with lawyers and law firms is when you're talking to them about a product or what. You know, they'll say, I want this integration or I want this feature. But then when you, the reason you need to talk to your customers is because you have to do a deep dive and say, well, what is it you're actually trying to accomplish? And oftentimes what they're trying to accomplish isn't always solved by the, the, the um, title or the, um, uh, I'm having a complete mind blank, but by the concept that they're trying to um, tell you they need. Oftentimes they actually need a functionality that doesn't match up with what they're saying that they need. So that's why it's so important to talk to them, understand their firms and how they work, understand what they're trying to accomplish, because sometimes the feature that you end up rolling out accomplishes all those goals, but isn't what they were actually asking for. You know, sometimes lawyers and other um, consumers don't actually know what they want. And that's what, that's why half of these tech pro products that have been rolling out in the last, you know, 10 years, no one ever knew they needed an iPhone. No one ever knew that they needed Clubhouse, whatever, you know, or Twitter. Like you don't know you need these things until they show it to you and you're like, wow, this is cool. And it's the same thing, just at a smaller level with law firms and what they need to run efficiently. So you absolutely have to have input because the, one of the biggest mistakes that new developers in these startups make is they say, this is what law firms need. And they just don't, you know, uh, this is what I needed in this teeny little role that I had in this large firm. And they don't have a broader understanding of the overall functionality. And so sometimes they roll a product out that just doesn't solve anyone's problem. And they don't, they make this mistake of not vetting it with lawyers and law firms ahead of time. So that's a huge part of actually developing a useful product, I think. 
I remember my very first job uh, way back when uh, as editor of the uh, legal newspaper in Massachusetts and the owner of that paper, uh, people would occasionally say to him, you know, we ought to do readership surveys to find out what our readers want. He would always say, they don't know what we, they want. I know what they want and I'm going to give it to them. And he got very rich doing that. So I don't know. There's something to be said for that. <laughs> um all right. What else? What else do we have this week, uh, Nikki? You want to talk? Or you got an ethics ethics case? You're becoming a, like our resident eth, eth, ethicist. Is that the word? Ethicist. Oh, well, I love the ethics stuff because you know, for over a decade now, my really my function, but even before I came to my case, was to try to get lawyers to understand and use technology. And the regulations, the ethical regulations, are always a big impediment to that. Both actually, and also just in the lawyers' minds. You know, everyone's afraid of a disciplinary action and no one wants to be the first to do something. And it's sort of this idea, um, our uh, civil procedure, um, New York civil procedure professor in law school used to always say, SEC, let it be someone else's case, err on the side of caution. You don't want to be the test case. And you know, we have that pounded into our heads. And so no one wants to be the one to screw up and commit an ethics violation. So. You know, I, that's why I love ethics because it is important and you want to track the ethics and see how they're changing as lawyers and use technology more and more. And also use that as a tool to get them to use it. It right. really is ethical to do this. But so anyway, yeah. the reason that this, um, it, it's not like super interesting. I just thought there were so many things about this that just seemed strange to me. It's, um, it was an ABA journal article. Oftentimes lately I've been referring to those. I'll put it into the, um, and basically it was just about a judge who allowed a reality TV show to film in her courtroom for a domestic violence case or domestic violence cases. I mean, that alone just seemed like such a hot mess to me. And so then she had a judicial, judicial ethics um, violation brought against her. And ultimately they said that that's just court administration and she was well within her rights. And, you know, she said, I carefully vetted this. And I looked at other um, states. I looked at Florida's ethics um, regulations and I, thought it was fine and I still think it's fine and the ethics um, committee agreed with her. It just, I said, so what I thought was more interesting though was like, why would you want to do this? I mean, it's especially like domestic violence of all different ty right. types of cases. I just right. feel like if you're gonna do that, I, I, I mean, I guess those are the most interesting from the perspective of a reality show creator and producer, I suppose, but it just seemed to lack common sense even if it was ethical. And there are also issues apparently with releases actually not being signed by all the participants. The show hadn't actually done that, you know, the participants in the court proceedings. And if your goal is, a, I would think as a judge, you're there to help protect the victims and also make sure that everything gets sorted out properly. But how does that protect the People aren't gonna wanna come forward if they think they're, they're gonna be splashed across TV making these allegations. <laughs> I don't know, that depends on what side you're on though. Some people may say that's good that they're so there's a lot of false accusations as well. And as a former public defender, I agree with that as well. But still, it just didn't seem like the ideal proceeding to be turning into a reality TV show. So that's what really caught my eye with it. All the best ethics cases come out of Florida. It's just inevitable. Well, as a longtime proponent of cameras in the courtroom, this, was, this would not be the model I would choose. <laughs> right. But yeah. was, these were public proceedings, though. I mean, there there are some uh, there are you know it, uh, abuse cases. I know in Massachusetts are often closed to the public, uh, but domestic violence case. I mean, domestic domestic cases otherwise are are open to the public, and sometimes even when there is an a, 
allegations of domestic abuse, they can be open to the public. But uh, so I don't know what the status of these were. But. I mean, they, that said, there's, and this is getting very high film theory sort of bullshit. So maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not for this, but like there is a difference between the kind of, we're just turning on the camera and showing the whole thing in all of its boring mind-numbing detail that court tv does and inviting folks who have the power to edit and create narratives and whether or not even though the footage is real whether or not that is the reality once it goes through the similar you know some or some simulacra of it uh, like all of that sort of stuff i think is real and is problematic and i don't think the law grapples with that sort of social theory the way that they probably should when making distinctions between just showing everything public and showing a narrative uh, that a reality show becomes. Um, as somebody who watches the challenge, I don't really believe that all of those people on MTV are doing all those things in the way that they say they are. 100%. And I was even thinking of something like Judge Judy, where yes, it's a narrative, but there is a cognizance of we still need this to be a courtroom first and foremost. And then what happens for the TV show is secondary. So I know I've read up on that and they do have everybody sign releases out the wazoo to make sure that everything is above board. People know exactly what they're getting into by getting onto the show. I haven't really dove, in, dive, uh, dove into this particular case, but from what everybody's saying, it doesn't really sound like that was the case here. And it's just a matter of trust and what you have is the priority. If you're going to do something like this, the case itself has to be the priority. Yeah. And small claims makes way more sense than domestic violence. You want to do reality TV? Do a small claims court like Judge Judy. Why? Like, I don't know. It just seems, that just seems more fair, you know? <laughs> Those are much, there's a lot less at stake there and it can still be entertaining. Judge Judy was certainly entertaining. She made the show, I think, but still, I don't know. Didn't seem, it didn't quite sit right with me. Yep. There was a, there was an experiment a couple of years ago out of Massachusetts that were to basically just stream live out of, out of a courtroom all day. And I think it was mostly small claims. I think it was also like lower district court, which are the lowest, uh, lowest uh, civil court uh, in the state. But, um, you know, I, the biggest problem it had was it was just horribly boring. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, because it was literally just a live stream and then the judge could kind of turn the camera on and off uh, depending on what was going on. But uh, um, it was an interesting experiment. I don't know how much viewership they ever got, but uh, maybe, maybe someday. I mean, Dan Abrams, little venture seems to be functioning. It's been going on for several years. And most of what that is, is a live stream of court proceedings. So somebody is out there watching it. Yeah. Somebody. Uh, all right. Let's see. Did Molly, do we do yours? No, we didn't talk about yours. You got, you got a couple of things. Uh, let's see. So, yeah. So the first was um, the uh, Wells Fargo lawyer based in uh, your neck of the woods, Zach, who went to, uh, who became a partner at, oh, I'm blanking on the name. They changed, but <laughs> there was a merger, Troutman, Pepper, Hamilton, Sanders. <laughs> so, um, and I, and I just thought it was interesting and um, um, really was curious about kind of what the implications would be for lateral moves if there's this remote opportunity uh, to move to a firm but stay where you are with your family. Um, and so I, I thought that was interesting. I, when I posted this on LinkedIn, one of the lateral 
recruiters uh, chimed in that she was wondering about employment laws. I don't think that would apply as much to partners, uh, but if they had support staff, that would apply. That's going to be a big issue once all this COVID stuff settles, um, because a lot of businesses, including like the ABA, um, when I was recruiting, you know, we had to hire from only the places uh, where the ABA did business um, for them to be physically located. Um, because of, uh, otherwise they're subject to the employment laws in those states. So it's, it, it'll be very interesting to see what happens. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are, if you think this will have an impact on, on lateral moves. Joe, that's right up your alley. Yeah, well, I mean, it is something I dabble in on the side. I don't, uh, yeah, I, I, you've caught me. I've not really thought about that at all. That's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't it doesn't it seem inevitable. Oh, go ahead, Zach. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I don't know from a lawyer standpoint, but we've from a IT support staff and law librarian standpoint have done a little bit of reporting on just the rise of the mid market for that exact reason. Um, Jared Cosalia of true staffing partners does a yearly predictions model. Uh, uh, article for us. And that was one of his major predictions this year is everybody's moving remote anyway. So why aren't you hiring out of Minneapolis, Kansas City, Indianapolis, because you're going to get labor for cheaper. It makes economic sense. Well, I'll say from the recruiting perspective that the biggest boon over the last several months have been the virtual firms. Uh, Those firms whose model is you do whatever, you're going to be leanly staffed. It's going to be all on you to get your associates and whatever, but you'll get a bigger take of your book because that's how we function. Uh, and people have been flocking to those, um, done tons of moves that the company that I consult with has certainly done tons of moves like that. And so that, I mean, that's a thing. I never really thought about the, what it means for employment laws though. Like that's the part that was a wrinkle that you caught me off guard on. Right. Because so, you know, if, if the partner's responsible for building her own support staff, then who are those employees working for? Are they working separately for her under Minnesota law or, is, or are they yeah. employees of the firm? Um, that's, that's, that's where it starts to get tricky. I, the partners, if they're in a partnership, that's different. Um, that employment agreement is different. Well, and there's still tax implications too, I think, right? Even if, even if they're in a partnership model, I mean, there would there would be some kind of tax implication. But I, I mean, I'm sure these lawyers could probably figure it out. They're smart, right? But um, well, I mean, what I think would be interesting was that, like, I mean, when I, when I, when I used to write about, like, uh, lateral partner movement and whatnot, people always told me that, like, the key to a successful key to a successful lateral move was integrating that partner into the, into the, into the culture of the firm, whatever it is, you know, getting them in front of all their clients, getting them all in front of all their fellow partners and kind of you're really kind of making them part of the family, so to speak. So if you have, you know, if you, if you go to like a more virtual based model where you have people, you know, in remote parts of the country or, on the, or even in the world, I do wonder what that, what that means as far as like, how do you integrate that person into the fold? I mean, obviously right now, you know, we're all doing this kind of stuff, but so would that, would that then have to, you know, be, be a permanent or, or more, a more consistent part of the integration process going forward? Cause you can't always just have like, you know, partner retreats and bring people bring people in from all over the from all over the globe and whatnot. I mean, especially if if, if uh, you know if, if you know if we're still doing this in, in 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 another year or so. But so so I do wonder what that means as far as like integration efforts. What that like what what firms are doing to try to bring these people in and, and trying to make them part of the family and whatnot. 
I mean, it's such an interesting time. I, I interviewed uh, earlier this week uh, Bradley Gayton, who's the uh, general counsel at uh, Coca-Cola, who, inter- who released the sort of uh, somewhat strict uh, diversity standards uh, um, recently, you know, re- requiring firms to meet certain mandates around diversity or else have their fees cut or maybe maybe get fired altogether. Really interesting stuff. But but he just took over. He was general counsel at Ford. He moved to uh, Coca-Cola as of September 1st. He's never been in his office and he's never met his staff. <laughs> you know, he's been there six months now. Um, he, he said he did do like kind of a, a bubble meeting with a few of the, uh, the top uh, top ranking people in his department, I think, uh, for like a couple of days somewhere. But, uh, you know, he's got a he's got a staff of, of hundreds of people all over the world. And, and for the most part, he really hasn't met any of them face to face. And yet, you know, they've been able to do things like get together and develop these standards around diversity and inclusion. Uh, you know, it just doesn't seem to really matter uh, anymore. Uh, and, and ironically, he's actually moved on to Atlanta. And again, he's never even been into his office since he's done that. But, uh, um, you know, it's just this is everything is just so different right now in terms of where people are located. I mean, I think I, not only are we going to hire remotely, we're going to, you know, the, the lawyers who were like headquartered, you know, been based in New York or whatever, they're not going to stay in New York if they don't, you know, they can go somewhere else, go live out of their summer homes in Martha's Vineyard or something. I do kind of wonder if like the laterals, so they're most likely partners in business is a little bit less of like, they need to maybe get in front of new clients faces because they have that book of business. Of course they need to build, they need to add more clients and build that their book um, further. But I feel like it might be a little bit less of like, hey, we have to get you in front of people. And that might be more of an issue for like your associates that are like junior in their career and kind of like making themselves um, known to the partners and say like, hey, you have some billable. When you have those client matters, you know, could you throw some billable hours my way and actually introducing them to clients so they can build their actual book of business? I think that might be more of a bigger issue compared to like if you have the GC of a company of of course, they already kind of have like their network and they have to be introduced to people in the company and build up a rapport. But I think for like your entry level attorneys, it might be a little bit more of like you have to foster like those video conferencing meetings and those virtual happy hours or saying like, you know, trying to build that up. So I think it might be a little bit more of an issue to um, bring in the um, bringing your associates in this virtual environment compared to like your partners. Right. Yeah. Well, then it's interesting, though, there's definitely. Um, ways to have new employees come in and um, become a part of your culture. And I speak from personal experience. In my case, we've hired a lot of new people and uh, we periodically do these um, coffee breaks. It's just a way to connect people and break up the tedium of um, working during a pandemic from home. And so you're just randomly matched with a couple of other people. It's usually three other people from um, the, the My Case team across different offices. And you just have a half hour coffee break. And um, on a number of occasions, I've been matched. Uh, one of the people in the group is a, a, someone who was hired since the pandemic and um, they've never met anyone in person. <laughs> and it's just such a different experience for them. And yet they all you know, indicated that they, they feel a part of my case and the, the sense of culture and the culture that we've built and um, they feel welcomed and uh, so I think that, the, you know, it's, there are challenging, there's challenges, but there's ways of addressing those. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the many side benefits of the pandemic, I think, is that people are realizing that you can accomplish these things online. In person, ideally, it's ideal and better, but, you know, you can 
get these things done online and have new hires feel a part of a company, uh, even remote. So, so if law firms all go go to uh, increasingly or remain in a remote working in, environment and, and lawyers get spread out all over the place, does that begin to spell the end of uh, uh state bar admission requirements? I mean, that's something that's been talked about for years is getting rid of state bars and whether it's even relevant to be just admitted to a state bar anymore. Uh, Certainly Lynn Wood is currently hoping that happens because (laughs) uh, for anyone who's not paying attention to that, he um, apparently told people that he moved to South Carolina before then voting in Georgia. So uh, he really wants uh, the state bar to be off his back. Yeah, there have been those ethics opinions. I'm pretty sure I talked about them um, in the past on the show where different jurisdictions are now saying that when you work remotely, you're not practicing law in that jurisdiction. You're practicing in the jurisdiction in which you're licensed. So I think they're starting to um, see the um, fallacy of these, you know, um, requirements that you have to have an office in the jurisdiction in which you're working. And that's just part of that slippery slope to eventually getting to the point where you're like, this whole thing is kind of ridiculous. You know, you don't, shouldn't have to reside where you're licensed and maybe you eventually get to that point where state-by-state licensing is no longer a thing. I still feel like you ought to have that because every state has different civil and criminal procedure rules and, and case statutory, you know, case law that applies in cases, but it's a different yeah. issue for a different day, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, that, and who's going to do the discipline if it's not state-run? That's a, that's a big hurdle. Who does it now? I mean, it, nobody gets disciplined anymore. <laughs> Bunch of people uh, in a dark room somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, what's, uh, so Vic, Victor, what do you got this week? Uh, I, I just thought this was interesting that uh, 23andMe is, uh, you know, announced, uh, they basically announced that they're going public. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many of you guys have done it. I've done it. Um, you know, I, I mean, I didn't find that many interesting um, and, you know, insights into my ethnicity. I pretty much knew what I was, but I did. I did appreciate the fact that um, the twenty-three, my twenty-three and me results show that I am actually a higher percentage Chinese than my wife is. So that really bothered her. Um, uh, although, then I don't know if you have done it. Like it also t- it, it tells you like what percentage Neanderthal you are, and so I was more Neanderthal than her. So <laughs> then that that restored her faith in um, in science and, and genetics and whatnot. So um, uh, I, I think it'll, it'll be interesting just because you know. It's a company, obviously, you know, that's clearly on the rise and clearly, you know, they've, they've whatever, you know, um, they, they've definitely, um, you know, come up with an interesting, an interesting product and an interesting, you know, model and whatnot. Obviously, the privacy issues are going to be paramount going forward. Like, you know, I, I, I know a lot of people who just refuse to do, refuse to take these tests because they're afraid that, you know, that their private information is going to get leaked or, you know, worse comes to worse, you know. So yeah, like like someone's gonna like have access to their deepest and darkest secrets and things like that, and, and I understand that, and I think that that, that is a concern, um, and that so that's definitely something that, that, that they're gonna have to uh, address. I mean, they they claim that they've that, that that they've obviously you know figured it out. That's why they're going public now, and that's why you know it's it, it's a good time for them to to um, you know present themselves to the world. So so we'll see we'll see if that's truly the case, and, and I think it'll be interesting going forward to see how how they continue to balance that that uh, that you know. Their, their model with 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 what with, with safeguarding privacy because you would think that'd be like a, a really interesting target for people to try to you know we talk about cyber criminals a lot on the show yeah it, that that'd be a really good a, a good source of information for a lot of people but my question is what does the wall street bets reddit account reddit subreddit think about this stuff 
Uh, I, I don't make any purchases until I know what they, uh, what they think about a company going public. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I feel like I need to start like taking my stock tips from uh, from 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 that from that subreddit now. I mean, usually when I go on subreddit, I, I, I when I go on Reddit, I, I I look for like Karen videos. But now now maybe I think I might have to start looking at uh, at stock tips. Maybe a whole I, new I line of mean. mall outlets and selling people's DNA and in, uh, in little little carts in the middle of the mall. <laughs> I got that email, Victor, um, from them saying they were going public in it. I had the same concerns you did. Like, what does that mean about the privacy of the, you know the DNA? But then the other thing. It really surprised me. It was the last headline I heard of, read about them was probably four or five months ago saying that they were struggling because everybody had that was going to get DNA tests got DNA tests. And there's not like this continuing interest in getting a new DNA test. So I was kind of surprised to see that they're going to go public with an IPO since last I knew they're having a hard time keeping that, you know, the traction, you know. And so I, I wonder what what's up good, the, behind the scenes point. deal is with that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I think they said that they were going to try to pivot into like more general healthcare, um, you know, which makes sense in a way. I mean, because look, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know. Then this might be disclosing too much about myself, but um, you know, like like my, my wife and I are, are actually right now like we're we're in the middle of the adoption process. We're hoping that you know we will we'll we'll have that so we'll have that done soon. And you know, I mean, the danger with any adopt with any with any adopted child is that you know you don't always know their medical history. You don't always know like what. What um, you know, I mean, when you have your own child, you can kind of predict. Okay, well, you know, he he's gonna he's gonna get my pattern baldness, or you know, she's gonna get you know my nose and my you know, or my you know um, my my way of like stammering in the middle of sentences or whatnot. But you know, I think that you know, with with with, with a service like that, I mean, you can definitely kind of see the, the possibilities of like, okay, well, for this for this like admittedly niche market, you know, you can see the why why people would want to like you know have have this as much information as possible when you're not getting that information or when you need like a, like an alternative way to find out information about yourself. So I mean, I can kind of, I mean, that's a small market admittedly, but I mean, if they're going to then use that kind of pivot into more generalized healthcare, like, okay, creating, you know, individualized healthcare plans for people based on their DNA profile and whatnot. I mean, it could be interesting. It could also be scary. <laughs> it could be, um, you know, uh, obviously they would have like a lot of hurdles that they would have to clear and whatnot, but I, I could definitely see the appeal of that. But obviously, you know, it depends on what, on just how far they want to go with that. If you yeah, didn't watch 60 Minutes this past weekend, go back and watch it because it was exactly about this topic uh, and about uh, sharing of our, of our DNA data. And as I recall what they said about 23andMe, I think they, they had the 23andMe CEO on and, and she was talking about building out their business around collaborating with medical, uh, with pharmaceutical companies and medical developers to use, you know, sort of use this anonymized so-called data to yeah to uh, to to uh, uh, I'm making and develop. I'm making air quotes for anybody who hears this later uh, in a non-visual format. Yeah, 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 and <laughs> probably appropriately so. But I mean, I think their business model isn't just on selling the DNA; it's on then collaborating with uh, with pharmaceutical and, and biomedical companies to develop um, treatments or 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 pharmaceuticals that you know. Uh, somehow they use this data to refine or develop these, these, these medical uh, things, which I obviously have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of potential for uh, whole generations of Henrietta Lacks's coming out of this, right? Like yeah. they've now got a hold of all of this data that they're going to monetize because nobody needs another test. They're going to monetize by 
collaborating air quotes again with pharmaceutical companies to develop all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's got all sorts of problematics to it. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure we leave time to get to our rants and raves. Uh, I, I did sorry. I wrote this week. The only thing I thought really was of any interest that I wrote about this week was this launch of this company term scout. Uh, I mean, they've actually launched before, but they kind of formally uh, came out of beta this week with the launch of their platform, which is really just a, it's a it's a platform that does these uh, customer favorability ratings on on B two B or B two C contracts. So they they look at uh, you know the, the contracts, uh, the Salesforce or uh, or or uh, or Google uh, on a B two B basis. And, and you know the whole the, the the concept is that so many of these smaller businesses that are maybe going to contract to work with Salesforce, you know they don't have the leverage to go in and say, well, Salesforce, I want you to change your the terms of your user agreement uh, uh, because I don't particularly like what it says in in this clause or this paragraph. Uh, you can't realistically do that. Uh, but you also don't want to spend a whole lot of money on a lawyer to go out and look at these contracts and tell you what you should be concerned about or should not be concerned about in the agreement. So the whole idea is to really kind of make it easy for uh, smaller companies to just get a sense of what the uh, benefits and risks might be in these contracts of adhesion, effectively, that they're having to uh, sign on to if they want to work with some of these large SaaS providers. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a clever idea. I don't think anybody's really done it. Uh, and uh, they plan to really build it out. I think they started with 150 contracts or companies that they've uh, reviewed. Um, and uh, I think, it, you know, I, I, I applaud them in part just for the uniqueness of, of what they're doing. Uh, it, it, there's lots of copycat companies come along in the legal tech space, but this is one I think that uh, is kind of uh, off on its own little, little piece of the, of, the, uh, of the landscape there. Yeah, I like the idea a lot. I haven't checked out your article on this one, but what exactly then is their business model? Because I'm a little bit uh, skeptical that already bootstrapped companies who would need to examine agreements in that way would be shelling out for something additional on top of what they already have to. Right. So right now the business model is they're, they're giving away sort of the top level evaluation for free. Uh, and then you can pay for either on a per company basis or on a per subscription basis to get the more in-depth evaluations of the contract. So, I mean, their thought is that, you know, a small company will pay 50 bucks to get an evaluation of a contract that they otherwise might have had to pay a lawyer a few hundred bucks for or, or more. Uh, eventually, they want to get into the B2C market at a much lower price point. So, uh, consumers can, you know, the consumers will be able to pay, say, five bucks or something, and understand what the what the dangers are or, or the or the areas that they should be concerned about with contracts that they're uh, being asked to sign. Uh, and I, I think they decided to go for the B the C the the B two B market first, just because it was kind of the essentially, you know, effectively the low hanging fruit. I mean, the, the the part where they they saw the potential to maybe get some stuff out there and start bringing in some revenue right away. But uh, they really want to ultimately be a B two C uh, uh, company. Makes sense. Yeah, I was just curious. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's. Uh, I want to make sure we get to our um, Victoria. You, were you going to talk about something besides Legal Week? I forgot if I did. I yeah. Here? 
Yeah, there was um, also an announcement in the legal tech space. Um, This company, um, Box, acquired the, um, it's like a cloud computing, like collaboration type of site. Um, They announced that they acquired e-signature startup sign request for $55 And I thought that was kind of interesting and, you know, kind of like if what's maybe like the hot legal tech and it's not necessarily B2B, but um, consumer-based legal tech. And it seems like e-signature might have its moment because of like COVID-19, people being a little bit reluctant to go out and signing documents, but they have to sign those legal documents. And my colleague, Frank Reddy, early um, last year, he wrote about like, is e-signature having a moment? Um, Just based off of like the, big acquisition deals that um, that were popping off during legal um, during 2020. And even though there's still some um, restrictions on when you can use e-signature and just kind of some states or jurisdictions require that you have a notary in person. But even though that there's still some restrictions, you're seeing like it's still kind of like a hot ma- uh, market and especially for like consumer-based legal tech. So I thought that's something interesting and if we'll see like continued deals um, in e- e-signature. Yeah, interesting. Um, all right, rants and raves. Who's got a rant or a rave? Molly, you want to go? Do you anything? Um, I, I I'll just my rant on a Clubhouse this this week was um, there was an entire session that was supposed to be on ethics, and it ended up focusing on how ethics rules needed to change to allow from easier and more pro bono and volunteerism and legal clinic work. And I just found myself getting angrier and angrier as I listened to the conversation, because that's not the solution for access to justice, putting the burden on already busy attorneys and the next generation of law students just does not make sense and it won't work. So that's my rant. All right. And I forgot to say, I was supposed to say, <laughs> uh, anybody listening to this, anybody in the audience now or anybody listening to the recorded version of this, uh, we invite you to submit your rants and raves, anything you'd like to praise or or uh, what's the opposite of praise. Uh, uh, yeah, send deride. Them. <laughs> we, we will deride. Thank you. We will read them on. Uh, it's been a long day. We will read them on a future episode of this show. If you want to send them in at contact at populusradio.com. That's P-O-P-U-L-U-S radio.com. Um, I have a quick rave at that. Yeah, that great. So obviously Christopher Plummer died uh, today. Um, so uh, I just want to, you know, plug plug the insider for my money it's the i i think it's it's the best law and journalism movie um um at at least of the last several decades uh maybe maybe even of all time it's one of his best performances i know everyone loves sound of music but for me this was his best performance for me he was nominated for an oscar he played mike wallace um uh you know lots of other great performances in it too russell crowe was in it before he became insufferable he was he was fantastic (laughs) al pacino was in it and 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 it's probably one of one of his better late career performances if you've watched any of al pacino movies from that era you know he was very much hit or miss at that point um and this was very much a hit so uh everyone you know go see it um you know if you've seen it before see it again if you haven't seen it based on the box office returns that's that's a lot of people um, you know, go see it and, you know, just uh, remember this, remember this great actor. Good one. I mean, let's be fair. Al Pacino as John Milton in the devil's advocate is the best. No, that is role. my favorite. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that is my favorite uh, <laughs> uh, Al Pacino performance, but yeah, you know, I, I, 
you know, but then, but then for every one of those movies, there was like Jack and Jill and Geely and Simone and oh, he was in Geely. Like that, that's yeah, a he, that's a testament yeah. to how little I cared about that movie. <laughs> wow. All right. Any, anybody else got something? I Nikki. have one. It's a rave and then an associated rant. So <laughs> I, somehow I ended up on the White House press list. I don't know how, like the press release list. And so I get all these um, and, and I have a email address that's published publicly that's different than my primary work email address. So I have like a sub folder that everything goes into. But I was super excited to see that I was getting these White House emails because you literally get to see the day in and day out of all the minutia that happens at the White House. But you literally get to see the day in and day out minutia of everything that happens at the White House. So I'm getting like 50 emails a day from the White House, but I don't want to unsubscribe or junk the, you know, send them to the junk because it's interesting. So it's like a rant and a rave. I don't know. I can't believe how many emails they're sending out. But that's, that was mine. I thought that this, this morning when I opened it, I'm like, oh my God, 40 emails, Mark all read. <laughs> but it's kind of cool to be on that list. I don't know how it happened. Well, as Nancy Myerland just said in the comments, better this, uh, or no, this Courtney, better this White House than the last. Than the Absolutely, last for sure. <laughs> Anybody else got a rant or a rave? Uh, my rant was, if we're doing virtual conferences, why are we beginning at 9 a.m. on uh, the East Coast, especially when it <laughs> involves tech? Uh, just throwing that out there. And it, by the for those who are listening to this later, by the reaction, physical reactions of some people, I think that I have some agreement here. Uh, I was just going to share in the chat for those of you watching it live, you can participate in the chat, uh, the worst case scenario for a presidential press release list, which is uh, to be... <laughs> quoted at the top of the last administration's press release talking about above the law says this is a great idea. So yeah, that was my, that's my new rant. Yeah. No, I 100% agree about the timing though. I was actually literally just about to say the same thing. I noticed, I think Donna said it in the chat earlier as well. Like it makes sense if you're at legal week as like a 9 a.m. keynote as a kickoff. If you're doing it virtually, that's 8 a.m. for me in Central Time. And if you're in West Coast, there's no shot. So, yeah, at least while even if we're back in person, if you're going to be live streaming this, you still kind of have to be a little bit cognizant of that audience there. And at least one morning's keynote speaker was in San Francisco. So he was up at like six o'clock in the morning oh. or something. You know, because because, you know, you've. When you go to a physical conference, if you're from, a, am originally from the West Coast, like when you go to an East Coast thing, you go a day early to get a little bit accustomed to the time, you know, and you, you have the opportunity to then wake up and drink, you know, wait out your hams hangover or whatever it is. But like you can't do that virtually. And so we need to kind of respect that they're not going to be there. Yeah. Um, Victoria, did you have any rant or rave? No, no rants or raves. I have to leave this okay. All right. meeting. So everyone All right. have a great weekend. We'll rant about you after you leave. Then. Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> okay, bye guys. <laughs> Zach, you have any uh, rants or raves? Oh, no, literally starting early was going to be mine. So Okay, oh, okay. Uh, the only thing I was going to, I was going to give a rave for, uh, for Kira, for Kira Systems, the company, only because I, I happen to, A, this is also a shameless plug because I had them on my podcast this week, but this is the 10th anniversary of their founding the company. They also just put out this whole book on AI for lawyers. Yeah. Uh, but I, they are just such a great legal tech story, I think, just because you know they had this idea. They were really the first 
company to start developing the sort of AI due diligence software that's that's ubiquitous now. I mean, so many companies doing it. And they had this idea and they really kind of struggled for a couple of years. They made no money. They had no customers. They they thought it was going to be an easy thing, kind of a slam dunk to develop the software and realized it was really going to be hard to develop the software and just kept at it and kept at it. Uh, and, you know, uh, two, I think it was almost three years before they ever made a dime out of it. Uh, and uh, and now they're, a, you know, a hugely successful company. And now they've just put out this book where they've, you're not, it's not about them. They brought in all these other great authors to talk about AI and law. Um, yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I just think it's, it's, I just like recognizing those kinds of stories. Those are the kinds of stories that really make me love legal tech. People should check it out. I wrote a blurb for that. I don't know if they ended up using it, who knows, but I did write a blurb for that book. Um, uh, like for the review of it. Uh, I, I will say- did. I think I saw that. In oh, the- good, good, good. Yeah, I mean, I definitely did. Uh, Noah's one of the first pre- people, literally the first person I met uh, at Above the Law. I had just moved to Above the Law. It was my first time being a journalist. And there was an event uh, and he came up and said, you know, we just started this company that like does this thing. And I was like, that's fascinating and that should work. Um, and so it's great to see, I, I agree. It's great to see that they're, they've got it. Yeah. All right, we have gone over our time. Oh, and uh, two things. One is we are not gonna be here next Friday. There will not be a show. We'll be back the fri- Friday after that. Uh, and second of all, for any of you who have still hung on, who might want a clubhouse invite, I've got a bunch of clubhouse invites. And, uh, if anybody wants to just email me, it's ambrogi at gmail.com. I need your mobile phone number to do it. Uh, but, uh, first come first serve. If anybody wants to reach out and send me, uh, I have three of them too, that just popped up in my, yeah, I think I have, I think I have a few too. So yeah, (laughs) they are like rabbits. They just, they just breed like rabbits. So, um, All right. Well, thanks to everybody. See you back here in two weeks.